Now, as we go into Proverbs chapters 5, 6, and 7, I think it's a good preface to say on the front end of that, that we all as human beings have desires operating within us. And some of those desires are by God's design, and other desires that at times are an operation among us are the result of our sinful nature. And it's important to recognize that there are both simultaneously at work within us. There are God-given desires by design that God hardwired into us, that God created in our lives and are there for a purposeful function. They're there to be satisfied. They're there to be indulged. And then there are always going to be within us the wrestling of other desires that are sinful desires and that stem from our sin nature. The fact that we are broken people, the Bible teaches that we are born sinful by nature, and sadly, sometimes because of that, even there are God-given desires that we then make the mistake in wanting to fulfill in God-forbidden ways. And we just tend to pollute and distort those things, and, and sometimes we wrestle, and then we live in a fallen world that's certainly catering to the sinful desires of mankind. And so some desires within us are good desires. Other desires within us are bad desires. Some desires within us are natural, appropriate, and normal desires. Other desires within us are unnatural, inappropriate and abnormal desires that are still operating within us. But wisdom understands this. Wisdom understands that the presence of a desire is not the same as the privilege to indulge that desire. Just because the presence of a desire is within me, that does not mean that the privilege or the right to indulge that desire goes along with it. God's word tells us and wisdom tells us, even if you took God out of the equation, that some desires to act upon them would not be wise. And I think we've all been there, done that in this rodeo. We're adults here in this sanctuary this evening, and every one of us to some degree or another knows the personal experience of at times in our lives acting on a desire that we had and that desire overtook us and we just kind of took that and figured, well, the desire's there, so I'm going to take the privilege and the right to indulge that desire and then saw the bad outcome on the back end of that. And so it is maturity and it is wisdom that separates itself from foolishness to realize that the presence of a desire is not the privilege to indulge that desire. That's not always the case. Sometimes a desire is to be suppressed, to be refused, to not be given into. And that's particularly true, we're going to see in this chapters ahead of us, 5, 6, and 7, that is particularly true in the area of sexual desire among men and women. Now, that is not the only subject that chapters 5, 6, and 7 will address, but it is very difficult to not recognize that that does tend to see the, be the primary theme 
that God's Spirit is trying to convey as we continue to learn more wisdom from God for how to live our lives in a skillful way, in a way that God is intended to be healthy, what's best for us, that we might be blessed and enjoy God's best for our lives. This section emphasizes wisdom to a great degree for how to avoid falling in the area of numerous sins. He's going to address lying, arrogancy, laziness. He's going to address other things as well. But one of the clear predominant themes, we'll see it this week and probably will take us into next week as well, because I don't think I can plow all the way through all three chapters as much as the preference may be to do that for some. We're going to see the predominant repetitious theme is this arena of sexual desire and how wisdom can keep us from failing in that area of committing sexual sin, from committing adultery, or any form of sexual sin, indicating how wisdom can protect us and keep us safe if we avoid foolishness in this area and we live according to God's wisdom. And look, this is very important because Hebrews chapter 13 tells us this. It says that marriage is honorable among all, and the bed, that is the marriage bed, is undefiled. It's pure, it's appropriate. But then it says, but fornicators, that means sex in any way outside of the covenant of marriage, premarital sex, extramarital sex, uh, homosexuality expressed through two men or two women, anything outside of sex between a male and a female in the covenant relationship of marriage. He says fornicators, that's what fornication is, any sexual activity or expression, and then adulterers, that is to have sex with someone who is not your spouse when you're married, or to have sex with someone who is married to another person, he says, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That's strong. The marriage bed, honorable, undefiled. God's design, God's intention, God gave the desires, God wants it to be exercised for divine purposes and for the blessing of a marriage. But anything outside of that, he says, you bring the judgment of God, severity upon yourself. So that being said, listen, that's why God says, follow my wisdom in this. And so God writes these things down, and particularly these are lessons. Again, you can tell that Solomon is trying to convey to his young son, saying to his young son, listen, I blew it in this area. Don't blow it in this area. If I can help you be one less casualty of the pain and the battle scars and the regrets that lots of us are walking around on this earth with as the result of foolishly failing in this arena because of our own ignorance or the deception of the devil or mistakes we've made, Solomon's saying, listen, son, if I can spare you, hear me out on this. You don't want to join our club. There are lots of walking wounded who are bearing the consequences of these things, and I don't want you to have to experience that. Take my wisdom. Don't be foolish in this area. And again, just such a great thing. And again, we, we, as we look at these things, there's strong language in here. And let me say on the front side of this, thank goodness for the blood of Jesus and forgiveness and grace and healing and restoration, right, that's available to us that many of us have received and experienced from the Lord. And none of these things, if you're walking with Jesus and under the blood of Christ and walking in the Spirit, should be things that make you feel condemned or horrible. But if anything, you have to understand the language is also intended to be very strong, to caution those who haven't made those mistakes yet, 
to warn them not to go that way and for us to be able to be messengers, whether we've done well or whether we failed and had to turn to Jesus for forgiveness and his healing and his restoration, that we could be advocates to say, listen, listen to what God's word says. Don't do this. Don't go down that path. It's painful. You're going to experience things that you never wish. So we'll see this great theme repeatedly emphasized again because God knows the danger of it. He knows how prone we are to it, and he has no doubt seen the casualties of it through human history. And so his spirit speaks about this in great depth, again, giving wisdom in this area of life, just like all the other multitude of the areas of life. Now, as we were finishing up chapter four last time, we saw there in chapter four how Solomon was speaking to his son, saying to his son there, chapter four, verse five, get wisdom, get understanding, don't turn away from the words of my mouth. And he says, don't forsake wisdom, her. She will preserve you, love her, and she will keep you. Again, talking about the value of wisdom is it protects us. It has a preserving influence that when we walk wisely, we keep ourselves safe. We don't make as many mistakes in life. We don't harm ourselves. We don't hurt other people. We don't have more problems and regrets on top of the challenges that life already gives us. Don't forsake wisdom. Hang on to it. It'll be a great preserving influence to keep you healthy and safe and blessed in your life. Then down in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 4, he said, and don't enter the path of the wicked. Don't walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. In other words, there are those going in a wicked way. There are always going to be paths to do evil. There are going to be people. Remember, Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be that go along that path. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there are that find it and follow that. So there's always going to be the broad path heading down evil, going in wrong directions. There's always going to be opportunity to do those things, to walk in ways of evil or travel those paths. And God's wisdom says, just avoid that. Just, just if you see the path, fine, but just stay away from it. Don't go near it. Don't go walk halfway down. Don't check down what's that path. Just stay away from the path. Turn around, go the opposite way and avoid those kind of things. And then in the end of chapter four, he was exhorting his son once again, my son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, don't let them depart from your eyes, keep them in the midst of your heart. In other words, my son, again, he's pleading, hear me, don't ignore what I'm saying. This is the preface to what we're going into. Please hang on to what I'm saying. Keep it close to your heart. For they, verse 22 of chapter four, are life to those who find them and health to their flesh Keep your heart, we saw, he said, with all diligence, for out of it will spring the issues of life. The heart is the epicenter. It's the fountain that sends forth streams of water into all the different arenas of our life. The same is true in this area we'll look at to a great detail in uh, verse, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, keeping a pure heart and so that our streams aren't polluted with a wrong heart. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and perverse lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Right before you, ponder the path of your feet. In other words, pay attention to the steps that you take. Each step has consequences. Each step can, one misstep can be a major thing. Ponder the path of your feet. Let all your ways be established and don't turn to the right or the left. And if need be, he says, remove your foot from evil. If you're going down the evil path, get off that path as quick as possible. Chapter five, verse one, he says, and my son, pay attention 
to my wisdom. Again, you almost you can sense there's a total parental thing there. My son, pay attention. Why do you think he's saying that to his son? Because his son already isn't paying attention. <laughs> right? Any of us who've had children, pay attention. You grabbing their little face again. Would you pay attention? You know, you're trying to, you know, lock in on their eyes or pay attention, right? Because kids get distracted easy. And that happens when they're toddlers, but it, it happens when they're teenagers too. And pay attention. In some ways, it's almost maybe more difficult as they start to get older, become teenagers, because once you become a teenager, then you know everything, right? We've all been there, done that too. And so pay attention, my son. This is important. You're a young man now. There are desires awakening within you. It's going to be even harder now because you're not five years old. Now you're 15. Now you have bodily desires arising and natural God-given hormones and things are, things are happening. And pay attention, he says, my son. Listen to my wisdom. Don't ignore me. Lend your ear. Give me your ear to my understanding that you may preserve, notice discretion. This will preserve you. And your lips may keep knowledge. In other words, you would not only know what is right, but you'll be able to preserve and pass on knowledge to help other, no doubt, young men and young women around you. So he goes from talking about your lips passing on knowledge that I pass on to you, and then verse 3, he begins to talk about a different set of lips, and here's where the problem starts to happen, because he now starts to talk very practically how wisdom can protect us from one of the greatest threats, and in my estimation, dangers in the society, and that is the error of sexual sin and the tremendous damage it can bring into all of our lives as human beings and our marriages and our families. So verse 3, he begins with this wisdom to caution his son. For the lips of an immoral woman, now we already saw her back in chapter 2, the immoral woman, she's going to show up repeatedly. The lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. Lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable. You do not know them. So Solomon now begins to caution his young son about, notice, the immoral woman. He already mentioned being careful of the immoral woman back in chapter 2. The immoral woman is a reference to this sinful seductress, you might say, who is seeking to seduce and draw one into wrong sexual activity in an immoral way, outside of God's design of where that's to be expressed, which is only within the boundaries of a marriage relationship. So that's who the immoral woman is. She's this sinful seductress trying to draw the young man into sexual activity. And notice from verse 3 a few things with me. But notice that she clearly knows how to speak in a way to entice and to draw this young man into this sinful behavior sexually. It says there, her lips... The lips of this immoral woman drip honey. Now, honey was known to be one of the sweetest and pleasant things in the ancient culture that they ate. So he uses this analogy here. And the indication here is her lips are like sweet like honey. The idea is here, we might say, she knows how to sweet talk a man. And this immoral woman knows how to sweet talk a man, how to draw him in, how to entice him with what's pleasurable. 
to be able to offer through seduction what's appetizing, what's appealing. She, she knows how to work that angle with a man. And he says as well here, her mouth also is smoother than oil. And oil was used in multiple different ways, but even as it's used to this day still, one of the primary uses of oil is, is like a lubricant to you know, keep kind of things lubricated so parts work together mechanically and to grease gears so you might shay. She knows how to sweet talk a man, and she also knows how to grease the gears because she understands how men work. And this Amara woman, understanding how men work, knows what stirs them and how to grease the gears of a man to draw him in to engage in sexual sin with her. And please notice, if you would, for all of our application in verse 3, as we now go into this section here, notice the first step towards sexual sin in any capacity, the first step towards adultery, notice that it always begins with communication with the opposite sex. It's her lips. It's communication. And I tell you, and I've been, you know, almost 25 years in, in pastoral ministry now, and I've sat with tons of heartbroken, fractured, regretful people, whether situations where adultery and infidelity has happened or people have entered into a relationship sexually that they you know, knew that they shouldn't have, and then they're on the backs. And, and, and I can't tell you how many times you always can trace that back to. It always started with just some conversation with the opposite sex. And just a little bit of conversation that led to then inappropriate conversation. Just out of something as simple as conversation and little flirtatious statements and little things. And just from something like that, it just begins to be this process that gets things moving in that direction. And a person with an impure heart knows how to kind of grease the gears and sweet talk. And again, if you want to reverse it, ladies, and talk about the guy who can sweet talk and grease the gears, there are guys that can do that too. But here Solomon is speaking to his sons, and he says, look, be careful. He says, it may look appetizing. It may seem very appealing. It may be initially very enjoyable, like tasting honey. But look, verse 4, it goes from honey, and then 15 minutes later, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. That's a poison. So he says, it goes from being the most delightful, enjoyable, satisfying thing, like partaking of honey, and he says, and just shortly afterwards, the end result, it's like you just drank down a bottle of poison. It's toxic. And the end result of doing such, the end result of that momentary pleasure is bitter poison that causes miserable harm. Notice he says, sharp as a two-edged sword. The consequence of indulging sexual sin always brings painful wounds in people's lives, just like the sharp two-edged sword. A two-edged sword, understand, was intended purposely to be an incredibly painful and lethal weapon. The reason it had two edges on the sword was because you would pierce and then you could go this way and this way because it had a sharp blade both ways. So not only would you, you wouldn't just slash, it had two edges. So you went in and then either up and down or you went in and side to side. And this is the idea of the incredible pain and wounds that sadly come when we fall prey to this mistake of of sexual sins he's describing here. Verse 5, he goes on to say, her feet go down to death and her steps lay hold of hell. Notice there's that, that downward progression. And we all know, is it not true? Think about how many people, many good men have been taken down by a woman through sexual sin. 
Many good women, many you know, people have been taken down by sexual sin and the error of that mistake with another person and have been drawn down and taken down into a very dark and a miserable place. So he says, be careful. Don't ponder that path of life. Her ways are unstable and you do not know them. So those who draw people into sexual sin, he says, this immoral woman, he says, be careful. She is an unstable person. Her ways are not reliable. She's not trustworthy. And don't, don't think you're going to foolishly establish some long-term relationship. And this is the mistake people make. Oh, well, they understand me so much more than my spouse. Or, or they, I mean, they say all the right things, and they think I'm wonderful. And, and no, You're dealing with an unstable person. You're dealing with an unstable person. There is never going to be stability when sexual sin is at the basis and foundation of a relationship. That relationship will never last. It's built on the wrong thing. And so he says it's an unstable thing. Don't get this foolish idea that somehow, oh, because of the, you know, the lust and the, the, the you know, ecstasy that somehow it's going to last. He says, no, that's an unstable person in an unstable situation. Don't buy into that, son. He's saying that's just a, a foolish trap. Therefore, he says, verse 7, hear me now, my children. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. So notice here, verse 8, great wisdom regarding how to deal with this area. He says, here's my advice, son, to avoid the immoral woman, to avoid the mistake of sexual sin. He says, just remove yourself away from her. In other words, the wisdom, very simply, is the best defense to overcome sexual temptation is distance. Distance. It's not rocket science. It's distance. Son, just get away from her. <laughs> just get as much distance between you and her as you possibly can. And it's that same old adage. You know, if you don't walk near the edge of the cliff, there's no way you can fall off it. Well, what if I fall off the cliff? What if I... Just don't go near the edge. If you just don't, but if you're going to go near the edge because you want to see how close you can get to the edge or you want to, you're curious to, to look over, then you're increasing your probability that you're probably potentially going to fall over the edge. And the same way in this area. He says, look, just remove yourself off from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Just don't go in. That's great advice. You're not married to somebody. Don't go in the door of their house. You shouldn't be alone in a house with someone who's not your spouse unless you got supervision. If not, you got way more self-control than I do. You're a human being. It's just not wise. It's just not prudent. You got to be careful. You got to have safeguards and boundaries. You just, you don't put yourself in risky, dangerous situations like that. If you're not in that situation behind the closed door, in the door of the house alone, there's no way it can happen. There's no way the mistakes can be made. You keep yourself in the open among others in public. So he just says, remove yourself, create distance, and that's the wise thing to do to safeguard yourself. Isn't this exactly what we read in Genesis 39 that Joseph did? Remember Joseph, that young teenage boy who found himself successful, prospering in Potiphar's house? He was doing everything right. He loved God. And what does the devil do? Sends old Potiphar's wife with all of her beauty, and, and, and she starts you know, making advancements and saying things and trying to draw him into a sexual 
relationship with her, and ultimately she becomes so aggressive, I mean, she literally grabs him, physically grabs him. He refused her, refused her, refused her. One day she physically grabs him when no one's in the house, grabs her and says, go to bed with me. Now, don't get the impression that Joseph was not any way different than any one of us. He's a human being. He's a young, red-blooded, 17-year-old boy who by design is being, you know, pushed into a very tempting situation with this older, powerful, beautiful woman making advancements towards him. And what does Joseph do? Joseph leaves his garment and runs. He just runs. He doesn't stand there and say, oh, God, please help me to keep a pure heart. God, please help me to resist temptation. He just removes himself. He just runs away. That's why the New Testament tells us the same thing. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, flee youthful lusts. That's what the Bible says, just flee. Sometimes the absolute best thing to do with any area of temptation or sin is just to flee and to create distance. You know, there's the old adage, I've heard it many times, perhaps you have before, it is much easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist temptation. It's much easier to avoid temptation than to have to resist temptation. Just avoid it. Just don't put yourself in the spot where that temptation presents the opportunity, and it is much easier to overcome and not find yourself being caught and trapped in something that then leads to regrets and mistakes. So he says, just, son, get away from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Create distance. Stay away. Lest, notice he says now, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. Now, notice as he goes on now in verse 9, and what he's going to do in the next few verses here is he's going to describe some of the painful consequences of failing in the area of sexual sin. And he's going to say, son, look, I don't want you to experience these painful things. So I'm going to tell you in wisdom, look, these are some of the things that are going to be the painful bad consequences that are going to come if you push past the stop sign and you enter into these things. And he says, it is going to bring loss in your life. And notice he mentions a few things, hoping to show his son what can be lost to steer him and others away from this error. The first thing he says in verse 9 is that sexual sin, one of the consequences of that can be a loss of your honor. A loss of your honor. He says there, verse 9, lest you give your honor to others. And sadly, that can be one of the very real severe consequences of sexual sin, whether adultery, whether entering into sex outside of marriage. And, and it, one of the real severe consequences is you can lose your honor. The honorable reputation that you spend your whole life, right? We spend our whole life trying to build an honorable reputation. You know, Billy Graham said, I think it was like almost like 50 years into his ministry, and he made the statement one time, he said, you know, I realize that the 50 years I've spent Building an honorable reputation, I could lose all that honor in 10 minutes of pleasure. Makes total sense, doesn't it? And that's one of the tragedies is that we can lose our honor and that reputation that we had, the honor that we built of who we were. And he says, that's a great thing to lose, to give your honor away, to lose that. That's an expensive cost, right? That's a harmful thing to have to incur, to, to lose your honor as a person. That's devastating to forsake that honor that you once had and your reputation and your character. And he says, and 
you can give away your years to the cruel ones. So what else happens? We end up then sometimes spending years dealing with the hardship of the cruel one. All the devil's cruel condemnation and beating us up and in a cruel way making us feel miserable and worthless and discouraged and and again just how the devil manipulates our minds and our emotions and in the and you know for, and sometimes for years for years the cruel one is just beating people up and making them struggle mentally and emotionally and and then you add into that people who then in cruel ways make people feel horrible for what they've done and beat them up and treat them cruelly because of the mistake that they made in these areas. And he says, look, I want to spare you from this, son. This is what people have gone through. He said, I don't want you to have to experience that. He says, verse 10, unless aliens be filled with your wealth and your laborers go to the house of a foreigner. So notice another thing that we can lose. We can end up losing all that we've worked for. He says, Son, in this one area of sin, sexual immorality, you can lose everything you've worked for. You can incur great loss financially. You can end up losing everything you've worked for, he says, and give away all of your wealth, right? Because now all of a sudden, because of a mistake in that one area of sexual sin, the cost is great financially in some way. And now all of a sudden, everything that's worked for is lost. It's taken away. And for years, you know, people may perhaps have to pay an expensive cost in some way attached to an area of something like sexual sin and a mistake made in that way. He says as well, verse 11, uh, verse 11, and you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. So what's another unfortunate result? Even the loss of health, right? He says your flesh and your body can end up struggling as the result and being consumed of the area of sexual sin. It can result in some loss of health, some damage to our own body, and sexual sin can have that effect. I mean, sexually transmitted diseases, we can harm our body in some way, cause an issue and a consequence. You know, I just, even today, you know, just looked up a statistic or two, you know, 15 to 24-year-olds, 15 to 24-year-olds account for half of all new STD infections. Half of all new sexually transmitted disease infections, half of them, 15 to 24 year olds. Here's this more mind blowing. That statistic's four years old. In the sexually perverse and charged generation we're living in now, even year to year, to year where's that number now? 15 to 24 year olds. And again, the, the, the health, the complications, the, the things that cause such you know, problems to come even to people's physical health, the harm that you know, can come from having to perhaps you know, uh, you know, experience an STD or you know, maybe engaging in an abortion. And again, all these health effects that can harm a person's body, God's wanting to spare us from this. He's wanting to give us wisdom to protect us. And not only that, now look, look at the sense of regret. You can hear this coming out. When you mourn at last, verse 11, and say, verse 12, how I have hated instruction, and my heart despised correction, exclamation point, frustration. Why did I do that? I've not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I knew better. People told me these things at one point in my life, and I blew past the stop signs anyway. 
He says, I was on the verge of total ruin, verse 14, in the midst of the assembly and in the congregation. So notice, he speaks here of deep regret. That's another experience that a person goes through, living with those kind of deep regrets, the realization that they've blown past warning signs and they're utterly frustrated with themselves. And they're beating themselves up and they're angry with themselves. And a person's life, he says, verse 14, can even be brought to the verge, look what he says, of total ruin. Total ruin. As the result of the error of sexual sin, somebody literally feeling like they're at the edge of total ruin in their life. God wants to spare us from that. He wants to spare people from that. He doesn't want to see that happen. And God says, this, this is not my heart, and, and I don't want foolishness to overcome people. And, and so he's warning his son, please, be careful. Now, notice as we get to verse 15, we see here God's wisdom, not only how to avoid sexual sin and how to avoid adultery, but we see that God says, look, I've provided a solution. And God provides solutions to everything. So God says, look, I've told you how to avoid that, but God says, let me tell you what the solution is to safeguard in that area, and here's God's solution. I can tell you what it is. It's obtain a spouse of the opposite sex and commit yourself to them, and that is God's appropriate outlet for sexual desire. That's God's outlet. God's outlet is get a spouse. If you're a male, find a female. If you're a female, find a male. Get a spouse, enter into a covenant, enter into a commitment, and there, that is God's outlet to properly exercise sexual desire. That is a God-given desire that he created within us. Look, it's so important to realize marriage, sex, sexual desire, that all comes from the other side of the fall. God is not a prude. That comes from the other side of the fall. Sex and sexual expression, naked and unashamed, two becoming one flesh, that's all prior to sin. The issue is sin came into the picture and as human beings, we got all perverse and distorted. And now even as Christians, we act like it's taboo. Oh, don't talk about that. Ooh, dirty. I'm spiritual. No, God created that. God created that with a sex drive and a sex desire and all the nerve endings and our reproductive functions. He created all that. It's beautiful. It's wholesome. It's healthy. Sin and the devil has just polluted it all. And we have two options. We can either take God's perspective on the matter and take God's advice on the matter or we can learn from the locker room, or we can learn from the job site, or we can learn from YouTube, or we can watch movies on Netflix, or we can say, you know what, probably best to hear God's mind on the matter, because <laughs> God created it. And he says, look, this, this is the intention. Look what he says, verse 15. He says, son, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. In other words, he's using, again, poetic language here, of the sexual experience, like drinking water to quench a thirst, to satisfy a desire, right? When you're thirsty, you satisfy that desire by drinking water. And again, you can use lots of things, but you ever notice the one thing that quenches thirst is water, but sometimes soda doesn't. Other things you drink, and they don't quench your thirst, but water does. And so he's using this analogy here. Look, God's given you this thirst, this desire, this sexual drive. It is a natural God-given desire, but he says properly partake and routinely drink from the fountain that God has given to you with your spouse. Drink water to satisfy yourself and that desire from your own cistern. 
God's given you your own cistern and running water from your own well. And God says, do you want to do things well? Drink water from your own well. Leave everybody else's well alone. (laughs) Just drink water from your own well. And let that be where you satisfy your thirst for sexual fulfillment, not indulging, we might say, in strange waters that are not appropriate. He says, verse 16, should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, the idea is overflowing the banks, and now they're coming out of the river banks, and they're just going all out into the streets. Let them be only your own and not for strangers within you. So what's God describing here again is he's using these analogies poetically of the sexual expression in the marriage relationship that he's saying, is it proper for your sexual fountain as a husband, as a wife to be taken outside the boundaries it's intended for? God's saying, absolutely not. That's common sense. You don't want your fountains being dispersed abroad. You don't want your, your streams of water that are supposed to be within the banks and the confines of your river banks going and flowing out into the streets for everybody, right? When a river overflows its banks, that's called damage. That's called problems. And so God says, look, this is common sense. You don't want your streams that God has blessed you with, with your husband, with your wife, to be just dispersed abroad in the streets for everybody. And you shouldn't take your streams and go, you know, spreading them around. The pleasures of intimacy are something exclusively reserved for the husband and the wife to enjoy alone within the confines and the boundaries of their own banks, the boundaries of their marriage. And look, that's what keeps the waters pure. That's what keeps the waters pure, and it's also what keeps the waters of sexual expression most refreshing and satisfying the way God intends them to be as a gift to the husband and the wife. And that is the glue in the marriage relationship, and that's by God's design. That's the glue in the marriage relationship. The sexual expression between a husband and a wife is like the concrete in the foundation of the marriage. It's what strengthens the marriage. It's the concrete that strengthens the foundation of the marriage. It is is the one distinctive thing that separates marriage from every other human relationship, right? We have very close bonds with our children, with our brother, our sister, with our parent. We have all types of other close bonds emotionally But the one distinctive thing for the husband and the wife is sexual expression. And that's because that's the only relationship where you look at somebody and you say, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. So God says, Tony, I know you're selfish like everybody else. I'm going to give you a glue to help with that. I'm going to give you something to build a strong foundation, and that is the expression of intimacy. And so God builds that into the marriage relationship because that is something that is the glue that keeps the husband and the wife bonded. And that's why it's so destructive when it's outside of marriage, because then people get bonded in a way they're not supposed to. And then they find themselves attached and bound together when they're not married, and then there's all kinds of messy problems and they struggle detaching because they formed a very unhealthy bond. So it's the one thing the husband and wife share privately together. It's just for the two of them, and those streams of water are to remain among them. He says, verse 19, As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. You notice how God clearly indicates 
and emphasizes here in our verses for married couples to find their full sexual satisfaction in the marriage relationship. I mean, he could not be more evident in what he's conveying there in the language. It's pretty strong language. It's pretty evident what God is saying there, and God is reminding us again, rather than trying to be hyper-spiritual, that the sexual expression was given by God not just for procreation to make more human beings. It was also intended for recreational pleasure and fulfillment and a way for a husband and wife to express love and to serve one another and to meet each other's needs in a way that God's intended us to. And so therefore, he's very evident in language that we should seek to satisfy our thirst and to gratify our appetite sexually in every way in our marital bond and together with our spouse. I mean, the language he uses is very, very evident. Let her breasts satisfy, that's a very evident word, you at all times. He says, may you allow yourself to always be enraptured with her love. The, the Hebrew word literally is intoxicated. The idea is like intoxicated when, when you're drunk and you're under the control of an influence. He says, literally, son, let yourself be intoxicated, drunk, under the control of the passion and the love that you and your wife experience together. That as the result of that closeness and intimacy that you would be able to have your appetite sexually naturally satisfied to the fullest extent. And he uses the word clearly, satisfy or gratification. Marital sexual activity is a gift from God to be expressed routinely for pleasure and fulfillment. It's something that's a part of the marriage bond and covenant to keep us healthy and safe as both men and women, lest we err by doing things the wrong way. And in the New Testament, Paul reemphasizes the same thing. 1 Corinthians 7, he says it this way. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, because that is a problem that we all struggle with in society, because of sexual morality, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. Again, God's solution, the norm, there are exceptions, but they're rare. But God's general solution and rule of thumb is that people should get married. There are those who may be called to celibacy. I believe it's a rare exception, and it is a spiritual gifting and calling where God, I believe, suppresses the sexual desire and gives them the grace to not need to have a spouse. But the general rule of thumb, he says, is because sexual sin is so prevalent that each man, each woman should find a spouse and then let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, likewise the wife to the husband, and he says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And then he says, but come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the Bible is very clear that God's intention with sexual expression is servanthood. In other words, it is something that we, when we enter into marriage, choose in loving servanthood to offer ourselves to our spouse in that way, to meet their needs, to lovingly serve them, as well as to protect them from lack of self-control. Now, that does not mean God's word teaches in some perverse way that a husband is to look at his wife and, I have authority over your body. 
your body belongs to me. No, that's called you're a pig. That's called you're a pig and a pervert. That's not the context of the language. The language is, is that the person lovingly, willingly says, I want to offer myself to you in an act of loving servanthood, and I don't want to deprive you because I care about you. And so therefore, I want to make sure that I gratify and satisfy you in this area so that you are fulfilled and that you're not tempted to struggle and make mistakes in other ways. That's what God's heart is teaching, is that there's this mutual loving servanthood and submission in this area, recognizing it's the gift that God has given to us to help one another, to protect each other, lest we find ourselves struggling in unhealthy ways. And that's why he concludes verse 20 by saying, for why, my son, should, he be, should you be enraptured by an immoral woman and embraced in the arms of a seductor? So in other words, he's using reasoning. When God's given a solution, what do you need a seductress for? God's saying, you got a spouse. You don't need to go outside of the marriage relationship. There's truly no need to leave the appropriate outlet that God has given for sexual desire. And see, if a husband and wife honor that and function in that way biblically, then the wonderful thing is, you know, here's my adage. I, you know, when I do premarital counseling with couples and, you know, we discuss certain things in this area, I always say, look, if dinner is good at home, you don't want to go out to eat. It's just common sense. And if in loving servanthood you seek to please and satisfy and find fulfillment with one another in the marriage bond, it diminishes and protects men and women from entering into these kind of mistakes with their sexual desires. It's a wonderful God-given solution and a safeguard. And I tell you, that is where the sexual expression will always be the most blessed. I mean, think about it. In a loving, caring relationship, a long-term covenant where you can communicate and you can practice for a long time, till death do you part. You, rather than one night stand with this person, and not, that's not blessed. That's just problems and misery. But to have the comfortability and the care of a person who you feel safe with and comfortable with, that's God's blessed design. And so he says here, my son, God's got a good way. Take God's way. You don't need to be enraptured by an immoral woman or embraced in the arms of a seductress. He says, for the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord. Great reminder in this department. The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. God sees everything. Sometimes people may for a time think they get away when they enter into some sexual sin or you know, looking at pornography or doing these different things, but he says, God, God's seeing it. And God's aware of it, and you can only keep it hidden for so long. It always comes to the surface. Anyone who's gone down that road knows it always eventually comes out. And her iniquities, he says, entrap the wicked man. Notice it's ensnaring. He's caught in the cords of his sin, and that's what happens. You get trapped. Oh, it's just one time, and then that's all it takes is one time. And you can get trapped and snared in a very, very great way. And he says, and he shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. Let's look at a few more things before we wrap up. He says, my son, if you become surety for your friend, if you shake in hands in a pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. He says, so do this, my son, deliver yourself, for you have come into the hand of 
your friend. So the idea here of becoming surety for your friend or someone else is basically ensuring, you might say, that you will pay some debt or financial obligation if they can't. You become surety for them. Hey, if they can't meet that financial obligation, I'll take care of it. I'll stand behind them. Today we might say like co-signing for a loan or you know things like that. Hey, if they can't, I, I, I will take responsibility for that financial obligation. And the Bible is saying here, God says, that's usually not a very wise thing to do. Because he says, if you're not able to genuinely take care of that, you're going to ensnare yourself in some major problems. And if somebody is not willing at times to stand behind their own obligation to take care of something financially, or maybe they can't handle that financially, it may be because maybe they shouldn't do that financially. And so he says, be careful. Because sometimes, you know, this kind of stuff happens. People co-sign for loans. You can choose to do with your own freedom and following the Lord's leading, whatever you want to do. God just says, be careful. It's not always the wisest thing. And sometimes you can get a stare. It's interesting that he says you become surety for a friend. Because isn't that usually how it happens? Your friends, your relatives. It's through relationships. People enter into these arrangements. And then all of a sudden, a financial fiasco happens. And you're getting taken down. And all of a sudden, it's amazing how... That relationship gets real awkward at Thanksgiving dinner, or the friendship falls apart. And so he just says, just he's just saying, be wise. Be wise in this area. Just, you know, abstain. Be careful, he says. If you're going to enter into that, make sure you're totally okay that if they can't pay, that you're going to take care of it. And you're not going to bark or complain about it. He says, here's the best thing to do. Go and plead yourself and plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids, he says, verse 4. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. And again, what he's describing here, if you get yourself into a financial arrangement that maybe you shouldn't have, maybe you got involved in something, maybe you're engaged in some contract, maybe you entered into some situation where you've got yourself under a debt or an obligation and now you're ensnared to that, or maybe you've entered into some business situation. He says, look, the soonest that you can get yourself out of that get out of it. He says, it's like an animal caught in a trap. The sooner you can get out of that trap, get yourself out of it. whatever you got to do. Let me look at the language. He says, humble yourself, plead with your friend. Hey, I, I'm in, I should not have gotten involved in this. Uh, you know, or maybe it's again, maybe it's a financial debt. He says, give no sleep to your eyes. The idea is don't rest until you can deliver yourself from it. Work hard, do whatever you got to do, double down, get out from under the debt, God would say. Deliver yourself, get out from under that obligation, lest it be something that becomes a crushing financial thing in your life. And again, wisdom wants to protect us from these kind of things that can harm us. He says, verse 6, go to the ant, you sluggard. So in case we have any of those here tonight. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. So here he is giving a exhortation, you might say a warning to the foolishness of being lazy, to being unmotivated. And being lazy and unmotivated is always rooted really in one thing, irresponsibility. That's what it's rooted in. So here he speaks to the, to the sluggard, to the unmotivated, irresponsible person who's just being lazy. It's not that they can't work, it's that they're choosing not to. They're just being slothful and unproductive. And he says, go and look at the ants. Consider the ants, he says. 
They don't have a captain. They don't have an overseer. They don't have a, you know, they don't have a supervisor. Yeah, I mean, we've all seen ants before, right? I go right now. I got a trail of them. They keep taking this path back and of course across my patio or whatever. I never once have seen like a foreman out there saying, "Come on, boys, pick it up, sluggards." But somehow, like in this orderly way, I mean, they just like they make these lines, and it's like a train. They got they're like a two-lane highway. They got one going this way, and the others are coming back. And I mean, ants, these little tiny creatures, they're incredibly industrious. They're incredibly productive. They're very hardworking. And so he says, look, learn a lesson from a little tiny ant. They don't need somebody whipping them and yelling at them to motivate them. They're self-motivated. They're not unmotivated. They're not lazy. They're not unproductive. They're, they're productive creatures. And he says, this is what they do because they think ahead. They provide their supplies in the summer. They gather food in the harvest. The idea is there's, there's much wisdom to diligence and hard work and staying productive and properly preparing and being industrious like the ants. And again, we're going to see lots of this described when we get into the Proverbs going further on. So it's an exhortation to avoid the foolishness of human laziness and lack of motivation. He says, verse 9, how long will you slumber, O sluggard? Will you rise from your sleep? Now, you can use that if you have a teenager once in a while. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and need like an armed man. So notice here, attached to the struggle of being unmotivated and lazy, the Bible always does kind of seem to keep attaching. It's too much of a love for sleep. Again, is sleep and rest a natural God-given thing? Yes. And to be one of these people who I don't need sleep, you're just as crazy because you're going to end up losing your mind and making yourself sick. And getting adequate sleep is just as wise. God gives rest to his beloved. God gives sleep to us. But the problem is some people go to the other end, and they like sleep a little bit too much. And they don't understand the concept of there's this thing called an alarm clock. You know, when I was doing the basic class with the senior boys at, you know, Atlantic Christian School, we were discussing, it's one of the things I said to myself, look, structure, guys, structure. Oh, it's called an alarm clock. You set a little time on there, and when it goes beep, 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 and you just, you, you get up. You just stop sleeping. You just choose not to keep sleeping. You choose to be, and, and again, it's a choice, right? All of us want to hit snooze. We all love the snooze button. It's if you love the snooze button too much, God says. God says that will cause negative consequences because, notice, unmotivated people and too much love for sleep and human laziness always leads, notice, to lack, poverty. The idea is you don't have what you need, which is that implication. Lazy people are just honestly irresponsible. They're being irresponsible, and then they don't have what they need, and then they want to take your motivation to pay for their lack of motivation. And God says, that's not a good thing. We want to all be motivated. He says, verse 12, a worthless person is a wicked man. A wicked man walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes and shuffles with his feet and points with his fingers. The idea here is kind of like a little con man on the street corner making his gestures and telling his friends what his little plot is. You know, hey, you do that. And, just, and kind of, you know, shuffling and winking and giving little signals. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly, he shall be broken without remedy. Now, notice again, why is God so concerned 
that we don't get ourselves engaged in wrong behaviors, wrong activities. Again, whatever the arena is of human desire, whether it's, again, the struggle with you know, sexual desire, or it's the struggle with sleep, or it's the struggle with laziness, or it's the struggle with anything else, you know, being a con person or devising evil, or somebody, verse 14, he says, who sows discord. The idea is a troublemaker, sowing discord, saying things, doing things, behaving in a way, talking behind people's backs, complaining, and causing division, stirring up problems, causing trouble troublemakers. You're going to see in the book of Proverbs and really all throughout the word of God, God does not like troublemakers. We're going to see in the verses next time, he's going to say there are six things God hates, seven are an abomination to him. And the last one God repeats is those who sow discord among the brethren. God says, I do not like people who start problems in families. God says, I don't like it. I don't care for it at all. And again, but what is God's concern? He says, verse 15, his calamity comes upon him suddenly and he shall be broken without remedy. God doesn't want our life to come crashing down like a calamity, right? There are those of us in this room this evening. You know, there are times where we weren't walking with the Lord. There are stories, testimonies in our church, you know, and we know others as well where just the whole house comes crashing down, right? Just a total calamity and everything just falls apart at the seams. Who wants that? Nobody wants that. And God doesn't want that for us. The wonderful thing is God's a great renovator. Isn't that a good thing? Even if calamity comes, that God can put things back together and restore the years the locusts have eaten. But God wants to spare us the house falling apart. So he says, do things wisely. Avoid those things. Let's stand together. Let's pray.